look into God's Word. If you have your Bible, you can turn to Mark 13. Uh, If you don't, the verses we're going to look at are in the bulletin. There's a place there to take notes. We're also going to have the verses up on the screen. Before we look into God's Word, I just want to remind us where we've been. Uh, we're, we're in a series, and we're finishing this series on bad religion. A bad religion. And just to review, in this series, we've seen some things about bad religion. It's hypocritical. Um, it's people living with blinders on who can't listen or refuse to listen. Uh, it's powerless. So it can't actually change people. It doesn't have any impact. Um, there's, there's a show of religiosity. There's a show of like religious fervor, but there's no real life transformation, heart transformation. Um, and bad religion abuses people, and it abuses God. These are the things that we've seen, and Jesus is confronting this. Jesus hates bad religion even more than we do. Um, folks who aren't Christians can sort of smell bad religion from a mile away, and it repulses them. And so we've been talking about bad religion because the more that we discuss bad religion, the more we identify what it's like, the more we can separate ourselves from it. Um, the more that we can tell people um, who see and smell bad religion that we agree with them, and more than that, Jesus agrees with them, that often religion can be awful. And, uh, and so it helps for people out there to know that there are people in here who know bad religion exists and are doing everything they can uh, to follow Jesus and to spread his love uh, instead of bad religion. And now in Mark 13, Jesus is announcing the end of bad religion. This is the end. This is his judgment against it. And in his day, the pinnacle of the expression of bad religion in his day was the temple. Okay, it was the temple. The temple was created to be this amazing picture of heaven on earth. It was supposed to be this amazing place where God and his people would come together. But it had been totally corrupted it had been absolutely, um, uh, it had been made a place where Jesus went in and took a whip. He made a whip and he drove everybody out of it and said, this has to stop. And now he is declaring that this temple is going to be absolutely destroyed because God is going to bring his judgment against it. And when Jesus says this, his disciples say, wait, wait, Jesus, when is this going to happen? And how will we know? And so Mark 13 is Jesus' answer to that. And so we're going to read the end of Mark 13 because we started it last week. We're going to start in verse 14. It's in your bulletin. We're also going to put it up here on the screens. But friends, this is God's word. This is Jesus talking. He says, But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, Let the one who is on the housetop not go down or enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Because you're going to have to run. It's kind of hard when you're nursing. It's hard when you're pregnant to run. Um, Pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such a tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. 
And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. This is God's word. And as we look at this today, as we see Jesus declare the end of the bad religion of his day, we're going to look briefly at three things, just so you know where we're going. Uh, Do I have that? There we go. We're going to look first at the abomination of desolation and just sort of explain what that is. We're going to talk about the sun, the moon going dark, and the stars falling from the sky in verse 24. And then we're going to talk about why does this matter to us today. Okay, that's where we're going. So let's discuss first, uh, Jesus says what will happen. He says first in verse 14, this abomination of desolation will happen. Right, there's verse 14. It says, when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be. So what is this? The abomination of desolation. Uh, Well, this is a phrase that comes from the Old Testament. We're not going to look at it, but you can look it up. It comes from Daniel chapter 11. And what this is, this is an act of an enemy king that so profanes the temple that it can no longer offer worship to the true God because it has been so defiled. Okay, read Daniel chapter 11, verse 31. You can see this. And so um, that's, that's what this is. This was predicted in Daniel. Jesus says it's going to come true. Okay, it's going to take place, this abomination of desolation. And we have to remember that Jesus said this um, in Mark uh, 13, 30. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And so what Jesus is predicting, this abomination of desolation, it's going to happen within the next 40 years. And if Jesus is speaking in 33 AD, this is going to happen before 73 AD. And guess what? This happened. This happened. This happened in 68 AD. There was a band of religious zealots. Okay, these were Jewish zealots who took up arms and took control of Israel. 
And what they did was they broke into the temple. They broke into the temple and they invaded the Holy of Holies place. That was where God's throne was. That was the place that was triple guarded away from people to go in. No one was allowed to go in there. Otherwise, they would defile it except for one person, the high priest. And that one person, that high priest could go into this place, into the very presence of God once a year. And he had to go with the blood sacrifice to atone for his sins because he could not stand in the presence of God because of his sin. And so this band of religious elders broke in and they invaded this holy of holies place. Um, they defiled the very presence of God. And as they took charge, they committed murder in the temple. They even murdered the chief priest of that day. And so they did this saying that if the whole nation would follow them and take up arms against Rome, God would fight for them and give them victory. And so they committed this abomination of desolation and they were trying to rally the nation to fight for a Judaism, to fight for the spirituality that Jesus was condemning. So Jesus declares that the temple will be destroyed, but these zealots take charge, commit murder, defile the temple so that it is completely defiled. And they do it saying to everybody, if you join us, God will be with us. And we'll, yes, we're going to go to battle. And yes, it's the Romans, but we have God on our side and he'll fight for us. Jesus says that when that happens, run. When people stand up with political power and military might and say, hey, follow us because God is on our side and he's going to defend the Judaism of our day, run. When you see this happen, get out. Verses 14 and 15. He says, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Don't even go back to get your stuff. If your laptop is in your house, just run. <laughs> If you left your phone by, just run, just go. Because if you don't go, if you don't run, you'll be caught by what comes next. Okay, now Mark describes this, so does Matthew and Luke. And when Luke describes it, he says it a little bit differently. He says this, he says, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. The thing that inspired the, the, the zealots to come and take over the temple and try to rally the troops and rally the nation was that the Roman army was coming. And they said, hey, we can fight this. God will do this for us. Jesus says, when they do that run, when the Roman army surrounds the, the, the city of Jerusalem, get out. Its desolation has come near. The Roman army came during that time to destroy Jerusalem and its temple. Jesus said, you have to run because this army is bent on destruction. It's coming to destroy the temple. And if you don't run when the abomination of desolation happens, then the Roman army is next and you will not be able to escape. You'll be trapped because they will surround the city and you won't be able to get out. In verse 23, Jesus says, be on guard, I've warned you. I'm telling you this before it happens. Now, when this happened, in 68 AD, the zealots took over. Um, they tried to lead a fight. When this happened, the Christians who believed Jesus, they ran and they lived. The Jews who didn't believe Jesus, 
they didn't, they stayed and they were massacred. They were utterly massacred. Friends, this is what happens when we don't heed the warnings of Jesus. Now, Jesus goes on to say what will happen next. Okay, what's going to happen next? This is verses 24 and 25 in Mark 13. He says, In those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. So what Jesus is saying here is that what will happen next is the sun, the moon, and the stars will fall, right? After the abomination of desolation, after that happens in the tribulation, then the sun, moon, and stars will fall from the sky and go dark. Now, this is where all kinds of people say, hey, Stephen, look, this is where we know you're wrong. You've been talking about this and how all this stuff supposedly happened in the first century, and I got it, you got Bible verses to show that, but come on, you can't be reading this right. Clearly, if the stars ever fell from the sky, come on, right? Like stars are all, you know, enormously bigger than the earth. If one star fell from the sky, hit the earth, there would be no more earth, right? If the sun went dark by itself, if that was the only thing that happened, life would cease to exist, right? We can't be sustained. And so clearly, this is talking about the end of the world, Clearly, the sun, the moon, and the stars going dark, falling from the sky. This is the end of history. Stephen, your interpretation can't be right about this. Feel that way? Actually, one of the most difficult things about understanding this passage is if you've been taught it before. Because you're like, wait, wait, hold on, huh? Wait, wait, no, no, this is the end, this is the end times, right? This is proof it's the end times, right? This stuff didn't happen. Right? And if it did happen, there would be no more history, so this couldn't be the right interpretation. Now, if you kind of feel that way, if you've heard people talk about this, I want to say first, I really sincerely appreciate anyone's desire to take the Bible seriously. Anyone who wants to say, look, if this is what the Bible says, it must have to happen. If anybody feels that way and is compelled to think this must be talking about the end times or the end of history, then... I sincerely take joy in their desire to honor the Bible. Jesus said this, they want to see it happen. That's, I think that's great. Um, but I want to say, first of all, this isn't my interpretation of this passage, okay? This is Jesus' interpretation of this passage. Remember verse 30. Jesus is the one who says that this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And so Jesus puts a 40-year time frame on these things happening, um, and he's saying these things would be fulfilled during his generation. And so let me say then, second, not only did this happen in 70 AD, but this has happened seven times since the world began. Okay? Seven times the sun has gone dark, the moon has gone dark, and the stars have fallen from the sky. Okay? Seven times in the Bible. I'm just going to show you one. In Isaiah chapter 13, verses 10 to 13, it says, For the stars of the heaven and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place 
at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. Same image, right? Exactly the same language that Jesus is using. In fact, you might think, man, Jesus is quoting this language. Um, Well, right after these verses, God tells us exactly how the sun and the moon and the stars are going to go dark. Okay, this is verses 10 through 13. Let me read you verse 17. Behold, I, this is God talking, I am stirring up the Medes against them who have no regard for silver and no delight for gold. Their bows will slaughter young men. They will have no mercy on the fruit of the womb. Their eyes will not pity children. And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, this is what's going to happen. Like, the Medes are coming against the Babylonians. That's, if you read from verse 1, you can see that. Babylon is this glorious kingdom. God is bringing the Medes against the Babylonians. And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the splendor and pomp of the Chaldeans will be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them. So do you see this? Verse 17 makes it abundantly clear that the sun, the moon, and the stars going dark will happen when the Medo-Persian army comes to destroy Babylon. So God predicts sun, moon, and stars, and then says this will happen when the Medo-Persian army comes to destroy the kingdom of Babylon. Let me make it abundantly clear. This is a metaphor. This is a metaphor. The Bible does this. The Bible uses metaphors all the time, and so often... Some of the challenges that we have in thinking especially about end time stuff is that we read things that are clearly metaphors that the Bible tells us are metaphors, and yet we think they're going to happen literally. Okay, This didn't happen literally back then. It is metaphorical language comparing celestial bodies, heavenly bodies, to world rulers. Now, Isaiah 13 is not the only time where this is explicitly done. This happens over and over and over again in the Bible. And here are just six more places in the Old Testament where world rulers are compared to the sun, the moon, and the stars. So you can write these down, you can look them up, you can come talk to me about them afterwards. But this is a metaphor that actually begins in the very first chapter of the Bible. Okay? And so I just want you to hear loud and clear, all I'm doing here is I'm showing you what Jesus meant when he said sun, moon, and stars. He wasn't talking about literal, cataclysmic, heavenly things happening. He was talking about metaphorical shaking of world powers. Okay? And so this illustration, this connection is made in the first chapter of the Bible. So in the very beginning when the Bible's written, it tells us to compare the sun and the moon to the world, to to, to rulers. Okay? In Genesis 1 verse 16, it says this, And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And it says he appointed those things to govern seasons and times. Um, And so in the beginning, God created this connection. God made this connection. And throughout the Bible, celestial bodies are compared to world rulers. And when world rulers are toppled, The Bible describes that in terms of the sun going dark, the moon turning to blood in some places, the stars falling from the sky. 
What's the point of all of this? Right, I think this is cool. I geek out on this. To me, understanding the Bible is an end in and of itself. But I realize, like, y'all are, you know, maybe not in that place. So what's the point of all this? Well, just coming back to Jesus, first and foremost, Jesus is saying that when this Roman army comes, the Romans are going to be God's method of bringing down the kingdom of Israel. That's what's happening. Israel is going to be toppled by the judgment of God expressed through the Roman army. And if some of you think, wait a second, hold on, why in the world would God take an unbelievably pagan nation and judge his own chosen people? I would say read Habakkuk, because this isn't the first time God does that either. Habakkuk struggles with that same question. And so God does this frequently when his people disobey. He brings the people they're supposed to bless, and they get crushed and conquered by them. And so... Let's see here. Yeah. So Jesus says this will happen, and it did happen, because in 70 AD, the Romans came in, the Roman army came in, and they destroyed the temple just as Jesus predicted that they would. It happened within his generation. And this then gives us understanding of what verse 26 means. Look there in your bulletin. It says, and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. So to understand this verse, and we've got to scoot because we don't have a lot of time here. If you read Daniel 7 verses 13 and 14, that's the Son of Man coming to receive a kingdom. If you read Isaiah 19, um, there's this description of one, one army overturning another world ruler. The same image, it keeps coming up over and over again, but that when the army comes to destroy, if you read Isaiah 19, that's described as the Lord coming on the clouds. And so, gosh, like, there is, there's nothing in me that delights if, you, if I'm disrupting this image that you have of what this is supposed to mean. But this is just Jesus saying, what he's saying here is um, that when the Roman army comes to destroy Jerusalem, that will be Jesus himself coming in judgment against his people. That Jesus came, the Son of Man came in the Roman army in 70 AD to bring a final end to this bad religion. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, um, Jesus says, nobody knows when this is coming. Jesus is saying, look, there's 40 years that I know this is going to happen within. We don't know the day or the hour it's going to happen, but you need to know that it's coming, and here's how you can find out when it's right at the edge, when the abomination happens. And so, um, so that's, that, that's the, the, the explanation of those other verses. But then I just want to jump very quickly and again ask the question, why does this then matter to us? Right? How does, I mean, if all this stuff happened in the first century, if all this happened in 70 AD, like what's left for us here in this passage, right? Um, and so just a few thoughts. First, this means that Jesus is a king who ends bad religion. Okay, Jesus doesn't just have empty threats. Jesus doesn't just sort of smile, wink, and wring his hands and hope that people will get better. Like, Jesus is a judge, and he will bring judgment on bad religion. 
He will bring judgment on people who stubbornly refuse to follow him. Um, And he is a king because what's amazing here is that Jesus doesn't just topple um, the Judaism of his day, but he replaces it with the church. Jesus came in power and glory and destroyed the temple because he was replacing it with this group of men and women who became the new people of God. Jesus brings the church and he births the church um, in 33 AD, right? So even before this, Jesus ends bad religion and creates something that is genuine, that is powerful, that is life-changing. Now, second, we also see that God is patient because Jesus makes this declaration in 33 AD. He makes this prediction. He says that this religion is awful. It's it's, it's defiling God, it's abusing God, it's abusing people. It will end, and yet, it didn't end for another 37 years. And I want you to catch this, that Jesus fulfilled the temple, Jesus replaced the temple, and yet God left it standing for 37 years. Why did he do that? It's because he's patient, It's because he's patient. And he spent 37 years warning people, showing people that he was now doing something new. He created this new body, this new family of his called the church. These people were following Jesus and God was demonstrating to the world and demonstrating even to Israel at that time that there's another way. And God patiently endured with them for another 37 years. He knew that this was going to end definitively, and yet he waited and gave people opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to hear the good news of Jesus so that people could turn. And every person who turned would then know, hey, when this comes, let's run. Let's get out. And so even in judgment, God gave them a generation. For us, it's the same thing. We're all going to stand before God someday. And we don't know how much time we have between now and that day, but God is patient. And the fact that you're here today means that God is graciously giving you an opportunity to turn from whatever direction your life is pointing and follow Jesus. Then the last thing I think where this matters to us is that suffering is our path to glorifying Jesus. So Jesus predicts this, and he talks about how when this judgment comes, it's going to be awful for his people. There's no, like, salvation. I mean, they're they're saved from being destroyed, but their life is going to be fraught with difficulty. Their life is going to be fraught with suffering, where people don't understand them, people hate them, people think that they're crazy, people think, I mean, which I think the more you live for God, sometimes the more of that you'll get today. Sometimes we're not persecuted because we're not really out about our faith in Jesus. Um, But what's important here is that these people, they they ran. The people of Jesus' day ran when the Roman army came, when the abomination of desolation happened, and they scattered. They had to leave their homes. I mean, they were homeless, and they fled throughout um, Judea, but throughout the empire of Rome. And what they did, they went into towns and cities and villages. 
and they connected with other people that loved Jesus, and they created these communities, these families throughout the Roman Empire that were called churches. And these people were remarkable because for them, all of the suffering that they went through, they looked at that suffering and their response to their present day suffering was, you can't even compare what I'm going through now to the incredible blessing of what God has in store for me. And that changed the way that they lived. It changed the way that they thought. These people, when they were mistreated because they were Christians, they rejoiced because they were found worthy to suffer for Jesus' sake. And doesn't that hit us right smack in the, in the eyes? I mean, yesterday I got irritated because somebody was wanting me to help them. It's stupid. Stupid. I was hard-hearted. I was so blind to the way that Jesus has gone so far out of his way to love me and to save me that I didn't want to help somebody who asked me for something really simple. But these people, these people that, um, that fled, um, they rejoiced when they suffered because they thought this is an opportunity for us to give Jesus glory. This is a chance for us to show the world that he is even more important and more special than this. And these people even, it says in the Bible, they joyfully accepted the plundering of their goods because they weren't living for things in this life anymore. They had put all of their hope on the glory that would be revealed in the end. They had put all of their hope. And so when they were mistreated and couldn't do anything about it, they rejoiced because that opportunity reminded them that they're not living for this life anyways. The reason that we're sitting here is because today is because 2,000 years ago, this is how they acted. Their example, their lifestyle showed the work of Jesus so clearly that people were compelled. They were compelled to follow Jesus. Friends, Jesus has given everything for you. Um, for him, when the cross came, there was no escaping. He knew what was coming for him, and he didn't run. He didn't run because he stood and took it. He died for us so that we could be forgiven. And that kind of love, that kind of love earns and deserves everything that we have to offer him. Let's pray together. Jesus, these, these promises, these passages, the stuff about the end times, I think it's really interesting, but I'm so thankful that it finds its way into the nitty-gritty of our life today. Um, Jesus, you predicted that your people would suffer then, and we know that the rest of the Bible says that we too are going to suffer today. And we pray that you would turn our hearts. We pray that you would remind us that you have been victorious uh, that you are raised and you are through death and in heaven now, and we are heading for a reunion with you.
um, that will be so incredible. Compel us by your love so that we won't live for this life, but we'd gladly give ourselves for others now. Lord, use us and help us to rejoice when we suffer so that you would get glory and credit and other people might find their way to you. We pray this in your name. Amen.